0: Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Here we go. Over the past couple of months we've been studying the, the book of Second Corinthians. It's Paul's second epistle to the Church of Corinth. and um, I have seen the theme throughout it of affliction. and Paul begins in the, the first chapter, talking about the purpose of afflictions and um, why God allows those things um, into our lives in order for us to be able to minister to others. But he uses a lot of his own personal illustrations in the midst of all this, discussing how afflictions um, come upon us and how we're supposed to deal with them. In the beginning part of the book, he, he deals with um, more of the, the physical side of stuff. Um, and then he, he begins to transition, as we've talked about, into the, um, the spiritual side of, of those afflictions. And over the past couple of weeks of studying 2 Corinthians, we've considered the, the, the concept of spiritual afflictions in which um, Paul has been bringing up and discussing. And when we got in then to chapter 10, specifically, we saw that he made a statement here um, discussing the fact that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in power and that these weapons of our warfare are, are, are going to be used in, in light of these spiritual afflictions that are going to come in our, our, our life as we stand for Christ. Um, The reality is that there is a a war, a spiritual war that's going on. It's um, throughout the world. Um, But it is a a war that is between um, God and Satan and his forces and Satan seeking to uh, go against anything that, that God desires. And I don't think we fully get a, a a great comprehension of what all was going on in that war. But I can tell you that specifically that the, the primary target, though we're talking about truth, is is just the fact that Satan doesn't want God to get the glory. And and that sums it up in a nutshell. But God has has Brought out his glory in certain ways, and he's revealed it to us through his word as well. And um, as we began to look at this, um, we saw that Paul then identified the weapons of the warfare um, in his writings. And so, as we considered it, we considered both the concept of prayer and fasting, which we had our week of prayer and fasting about a month ago. But we've had through this technology the opportunity to have. Uh, virtual prayer. Been meeting together um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night, night each of the last couple of weeks, and so um, I encourage you to to be a part of that. Um, again, we'll have the quote-unquote virtual prayer room open on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, uh, for us to be able to pray together, and uh, that's been an exciting time because that is, if you can see on on the screen there, that's the power of the whole armor that God has given us this armor for us to put on in order to to fight the spiritual war um but the the power of it all um is is prayer and fasting and so but it is all tied together to truth and so the 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 importance of truth um cannot be overstated god has given us absolute truth and satan wants to continually attack that and so um over the past two weeks we moved on to not just identifying the weapons of our war, but the utilization of it where Paul gives four um, items, four areas in which that we are to be using the weapons of our warfare, that armor in each one of them. It's basically talking about truth. And so if you look there, you can see it's for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments, for bringing every thought into captivity and being ready to punish all disobedience. And if you remember, as we, Um, talked about that two weeks ago with the strongholds. We talked about the stronghold of ignorance, idolatry, iniquity, and intimidation. Um, that, that it's God's word, it's God's truth that pulls those things down. And again, each one of those are an attack against truth that, that Satan, again, doesn't want truth to be heard. He doesn't want it to be taught. He doesn't want it to go forth. And so he puts these things out there, these strongholds out there in order to prevent truth from being. being heard and then casting down arguments and you can see it says that in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge the gnosis of God and so we'll come back to that gnosis of God because again God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth the truth is that God wants us to know him Jesus said this is life eternal that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent so there is this not just knowing about God, but truly knowing God in a relational way that God wants people to know. And that's part of the new covenant um, that he was going to establish, that he did establish in Christ, that we read about that no longer will they say no God, but then every man will know God. And so God is gonna, has placed it within us that we might be able to know him. And that's what his desire is for us. Bringing every thought into captivity. And the word for every thought there is a way of thinking, whether external or internal. And again, we're going to come back to that term today um, as we look at our practical illustration. Being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And again, we looked at the fact that judgment is God's. God is the one who will judge. But as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we as believers are told, do you not know that you will, the saints will judge the world? That we are, in a sense, going to be like the Jewry, that at that judgment, that we are going to be the witnesses, as well, and so there is a um, an importance for us to be able to know and to walk in truth, um, because we're going to be those who are judging others. Um, as we go into this last um, aspect of um, bat- the the spiritual war battle from the perspective of truth, I want to bring out real quickly Satan's tactic here. You can see that. It's an attack on the message, an attack on the messenger. That he has this twofold attack that he has go on. And Paul, as he goes in again into this, he's discussing this. And so there's the attack on the message. That's what we've been looking at on truth, that the importance of truth, the attack on truth, and the spiritual war of it. But Satan loves to attack the messenger as well. If he can destroy the messenger, then he can destroy the message from being given out. And so Paul is intertwining these two things together um, in chapter 10, and then in chapter 11, and then um, he'll continue on with himself in chapter 12. And so we're skipping the end of chapter 10 right now. We'll come back to it, Lord willing, next week as we look at the attack on the messenger, where Paul then is going to defend his apostleship um, to the, the Corinthian believers. But I want to jump ahead because this is the final little part on this attacking of the truth, the attack of the message, Um, a practical application illustration that Paul is going to give to the Corinthians um, discussing his great love, his concern for them, that they actually might fall prey to deceivers who come in who distort or change or um, modify the truth um, that he's concerned that they may very well then accept them. And so Chuck read from um, verses 1 to 15 just a little bit ago in Second Corinthians 11. You can see it on the screen if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube um, or here live. Um, that The reality is that, that it goes from verse 1 to 4 and then verse 13 to 15, where Paul starts off with, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Paul has, first of all, his his great desire for them um, is a warning against the deception. And, you know, the word jealousy, again, we take it as a negative term, but it's the word um, zealous, actually. It's, it's literally that in the Greek. Um, but we bring it over as zeal, and it is having this great fervor um, for some situation, some... Um, some thought process and so it can be zealous or it can be jealous and so um we take the term jealous as a as a negative term but honestly it can be a positive term if I see my wife um kissing on a guy um then jealousy all of a sudden becomes a it's a it's a positive attribute because I should be jealous at that moment and I should be zealous for my marriage and so the zealous jealous um goes together. Well Paul is has godly jealousy because it 's a jealousy for doctrinal purity that Paul desires for them to be chaste you can see present you as a chaste virgin to Christ that um, God continually throughout the prophets of the Old Testament talked about when people went after other idols and such like after other gods, which were not gods were just idols that he referred to it as adultery and so um Paul says, I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We have been betrothed to Jesus Christ, and so he desires for them to be pure in that, in that betrothal. And then he goes on then, um, at the end of verse 3, so your minds may be corrupted, because this is when Satan comes, and we'll talk about it in a moment, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul says, look, there is no ply. You can see I've got the word aplapis, uh, on um, the, uh, on the, on the screen there in the, ah, the, the, the alpha means not. And then you got the plot which is where we get our word ply from. There are no plies. And so like, um, when you think of plywood, plywood is literally plies of wood turned here and there com- combined with glue. Um, and so it's not a, a true board. It's multiple pieces that are put together. Well, there is none of that complexity in Christ, is what Paul's saying. Paul was, uh, Christ was straightforward when he taught his word, and he, he said, "Let the little children come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God." Because it's it's that simple. It, it's that simple that a child can come. It's nothing that's complex. It's nothing that um, the, the truth of God isn't something that's going to take a rocket scientist to try to break down to give to us. If you read God's word, then and you should, and you ought to be, if you read God's word, then then, then God will unveil his word to you. It, it's there for you to learn and to read, and nothing that he's hiding from people. And uh, so when someone begins to say, well, it really doesn't mean that, really this is what it means, and they begin to allegorize and figure figurative eyes things, I start to, to, to get a little nervous, because now they're saying to me that, God couldn't tell me exactly what he wanted to tell me, and his figure of speech isn't readily seen as a figure of speech. And so that I need someone other than God to be able to help me understand God's Word. Now, I understand he's given to the church pastors and teachers, of which I'm one, to equip the saints into the work of the ministries, And so there is a purpose for that, but I think that God himself has promised us, and we'll see that in a moment. And just as we come down in here, he's to give us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And I believe that. I believe that 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 the Holy Spirit can lead us into all truth. That's not just Bob leading Bob into all truth, but it's leading each of his 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 children, each of his believers into all truth. And so Paul's desire was for them to have uh, purity of doctrine. But then he then begins to talk about this deception of Satan. And, um, and he gives them um, an illustration from the garden, from Genesis chapter 3, where we read about how, again, God had given the simple truth to Adam. You can eat from the tr- any tree in the garden that you want, except for one tree. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. So. Not hard. One command, eat from any tree you want, except for one tree. Genesis chapter 3. We see Satan coming in the form of a serpent, coming to Eve, not to Adam, but to Eve. And he says, Has God said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Well, instantly, um, Eve replies, No, to God didn't say that. Now that's commendable that she knows that because that means that Adam must have communicated that to Eve. Okay. And so, but she then says, she answers it properly. No, God didn't say that, but she says, it's only the one tree that we can't eat of, nor shall we touch. Well, God didn't say you can't touch instantly. She adds a little bit to it. And so Satan then begins his work about causing her to question into, to, um, to consider the veracity of the truth of God's word. Well, God didn't really say that. God God knows that the day that you eat of it, um, your eyes will be opened. Now, was that a true statement? Yes, it really was. Because what did happen when Adam and Eve ate from the the tree, their eyes were opened. They knew the difference between good and evil. But Satan didn't stop there. Satan had said, what he said was, God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be surely open, and you'll know the difference between good and evil, and you will become like God. That's where the the catch comes, because now all of a sudden, it's, oh, well, hmm, I think I might want to become like God, and so they now, begin. Eve first begins to look at the tree. She sees that it's good for eating. It's able to make one wise, and so so she reaches out and she takes it and then she does the next if you would logical maybe illogical but thing and then she turns around and hands it to her husband and at that moment we're told because it's Adam's sin that brought sin into the world that their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they were ashamed not only were they ashamed but then they hid themselves from God, as God came into the garden to spend time with them in fellowship as he normally did. That's that gnosis. That's that that, that 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 knowledge of God. They had a relational knowledge of God. They had intimacy with God prior to sin entering into the world. That's what God wanted them to have. And so this deception of Satan is... First of all, with the illustration, and secondly, the corruption of our minds, which we saw, again, in Second Corinthians 10, when we were talking about the, the truth, um, bringing every thought into captivity, that it's the way of thinking. And so what Satan loves to do from outside and from inside is to love to the, the, the distort our way of thinking. It's amazing to me, as we go through this time to um to see on social media um people pontificate their thoughts um and they're giving us their way of thinking um in it's amazing to me how much of it is not based upon the word of god period it's based upon their own opinions and i when I get into conversations with people um, regarding um, truth, uh, one of the comments I, I make a lot, and it may sound arrogant, and I don't mean it to be that way, is that I don't really care about your opinion. You oughtn't to care about my opinion. What we ought to care about is, what does God's word say? Because that, honestly, is absolute truth. And what Satan loves us to do, loves to do is to begin to twist things bring things in, distort things a little bit, help, help us in an in a evil way, change the way we think, but not in a biblical manner, but in a worldly manner, in an in a unbiblical manner. And so he brings those, those thought processes in from the outside, and he inundates it. And if you think about it, we are being inundated right now with opinions coming in from all the different parts of the media. The the world has been doing things based upon the the, the input from the media, not necessarily from the truth of God's word, because they don't want that. They want to be like God. And so we have got to be moored, if you would, into the truth of God's word, reading God's word so that we then, don't have these corrupt minds. That's Satan's desire, is to corrupt our minds. And I promise you, probably, since you're a human being, that somewhere along the line, your mind is corrupted, that you have been corrupted by the world. And so, therefore, we are told to continually seek to be able to, to change the way we think. That's the word metanoia. That's the word for repentance. Change the way you think. Change the way you think. Well, at the end of the message, we're going to talk about uh, how they transform themselves, and we'll talk about um, the, the transforming the way we think as well, but all that comes into play into this part. The second part, which is really the, the primary part that I want to talk about here, and that is the targets of this deception, not just the warning against the deception or the, of the deception that's going to come, it's there, okay? So we need to be careful of that. But Paul then delineates the three areas, targets, in which truth is going to be attacked. This is an amazing thing. And you'll note under my my comment there about the gnosis of God, because each one of these um, that we were told in 1 Corinthians 10, that um, every high thing, we're told casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself, lifts itself up against the knowledge, the gnosis of God. And we talked about the fact that Satan doesn't want you to know God. And so if you look at each of these three areas, and we're going to look at each one of them, at first four says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or if you hear a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Those are the three primary ways that we will know who God is and about God. Jesus said, and well, again, we're gonna get there in a moment. He said, Philby says, Have I been so long with you? and you haven't recognized me? If you want to see and to know what God would look like, that's Jesus. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that brings us to the knowledge of God. It is the gospel which transforms us and brings us into this knowledge of God. So each one of these things again is for for Satan to destroy. Now what before we move on to Jesus and and looking at that, I want to point out these words for another and different that are here. We see them play out as well in 1 Corinthians 12. I don't want to go there right now with the gifts of the Spirit um, because how that is played out with the different um, gifts of the Spirit are in three different categories. But note um, the word alas that is there with Jesus. If one preaches another, alas, Jesus, and the word alas is the Greek word which means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. Heteros with spirit and gospel is the word heteros. Um, that's where we get our word heterosexual. Um, anyways, it's another of a different kind. And so, so this is important because um, people can bring another Jesus to you, and they may be making it seem like it is the same Jesus that, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, look at the picture. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus I'm talking about. But it's not the same Jesus. It's another of the same kind, but another is not good enough. It's the true Jesus. And then when we get to a different spirit, it's not even another of the same kind. It's demonic. And when we get to another of a different kind of the gospel, it is a totally different gospel. And we'll talk about that as we go. First, we wanna talk about the purity that we need in the identity of Jesus. And two things, as you study the New Testament and you see the attacks on Christ, specifically, many of them we read about in 1 John, uh, John's first epistle. And that is, there was a a denial, um, there was a group who would deny who Jesus was, that he was even a man. But then secondly, there was a group that would deny that he was God in the flesh. And so there was this battle that was going on. So John talks about the fact that Jesus truly was man. He came in the flesh. Paul then talks about the fact is that, yes, he was truly God as well. And so in 1 John, hopefully you've got the, again, in the email, the sermon note sheets that are there. And um, for for those in the, um, who look at this audio later and video later. There will be links for those as well. And um, there are a lot of verses for us to read as well as we come through this. But in First John um, chapter 1, we begin reading in verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands of handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Note what John says, that which we have heard, which we have seen, and our hands have handled. That when Jesus came, he physically came. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Drop down to chapter 2, beginning verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So for he himself to be the propitiation, so when he died on the cross, that meant that he was that human that was dying on a cross that there wasn't this um, human body over there that he merely embodied for a few moments. But and that's what they believe that they believe that a spirit came down upon Jesus as baptism. And then it left before that, before he died on the cross because God couldn't do that. God couldn't be born and God couldn't die. And so therefore the Holy, that that the, the The God Spirit came upon him when he was baptized, and and then the God Spirit left him before he died on the cross. But John says, oh, no, that's not the case, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And then drop down into verse 18 of chapter 2. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour they went out from us but they were not of us for had they been of us they would not have they would have continued with us but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us but you have an anointing from the holy one and you know all things i have not written to you because you do not know the truth but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So there was this group who understood that the Christ, Messiah in, the, in, 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 in Hebrew, Messiah would be the Son of God, that he would be. God incarnate, that they understood the the prophecies from Zechariah and from Isaiah, that, that Yahweh would come and that he would come in the flesh and he would be the embodiment of that anointed one, Messiah. But they would then deny that Jesus, the man Jesus, was that individual. Again, that he only came upon him and then he left. But no, John says, no, no, the one who does that is a liar. He who denies that Jesus is Messiah he's a liar and so that you can't split the two together that Jesus actually is Messiah and he is the one um, who came in the in the flesh and then in chapter 4 of 1st John we read begin at verse 15 and we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as savior of the world whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God and so he now takes it to the next level, not just Messiah, because then again, some would say, "Well, Messiah was was he? He was just a man as well." But now he goes the next step in saying, "No, no. If you deny that he's the Son of God, that he is deity himself, that that you are a liar as well, that you actually are um, going against God himself." Paul states. The same concept in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen is the chapter regarding the resurrection. It begins with the the gospel message and then goes into um, the importance of the resurrection and how that'll play out in our resurrection one day. And so, as a part then of that um, presentation of the gospel message, you'll many of you will know this because you've memorized verse three and four. Um, You'll notice this, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ, Messiah, died for our sins according to the scriptures. So, again, that eliminates the fact that, again, the God Spirit left him before he died. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, and then he goes on with the list of people who have seen him. And again, the important part of him being seen is critical, and that is after he he wasn't then raised spiritually. Again, so again, there's these people who want to say that this is all a spiritual thing, that when Christ then rose again from the dead, it wasn't a physical resurrection, it was only a spiritual resurrection. And so the, the, the apostles attack this and say this is unfounded it is untruth this is a deception of the devil don't believe it that actually christ was buried christ was um christ died christ was buried christ rose again and he was then seen after he was rose again so he was seen um by the 12 first corinthians 15 then down in verse 12 we're told now if christ is preached that he's if he if now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Do you get it? This is the importance of it. Now, I mean, I know that we, we, uh, we all on this um, coming together in the Zoom um, thing, You know, we all believe in Christ, and we all believe that Jesus Christ physically um, died and he physically resurrected. Um, but you know what? Satan loves to continually to, to challenge us. And if any of you are here um, and you you start to wonder that, you're starting to doubt that. Um, understand the the, the the tentacles of of where this plays out. If Christ isn't risen, if it really wasn't him in the flesh who was risen, if he wasn't literally, if he didn't literally die was buried, was raised from the dead, um, then, then everything you believe is gone. It's not even just that. It's, you, you can't pick and choose which parts that you want. If if Christ's resurrection is gone, everything is gone. Secondly, then, is his deity. Again, there are some, then, who want to say, yes, Jesus, in fact, came. Yes, he was Messiah, but no, he wasn't God. Again, that is totally contrary, contradictory to... Um, to, to the scriptures. Now, we've spent a lot of time on this over in the past, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it right now. There are a lot of verses there um, that I've given you from Isaiah 43. Again, there are verses we just finished Zechariah last year um, in talking about the passages in Zechariah that very clearly Yahweh is going to come in the flesh. Uh, every eye will see him. Uh, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Um, but in these passages in Isaiah, these aren't the ones... Um, literally they're talking about Yahweh coming, that's in Isaiah 48 as well. But these are the ones that, again, um, just give um, description of who Yahweh is, that Yahweh alone is God, and Yahweh alone is the Savior, that beside him there is no other God, besides him there is no other Savior. So you can read those later. But then in John 1, though, we begin to read what is stated about Jesus in the New Testament, that there is the assumption that he is God. And the things that we read that Yahweh declares about himself through Isaiah and the other prophets are then attributed to Jesus. And if it's true, if if Jesus isn't God, then again, it's not just a matter of, well, this part just isn't true. No, then Jesus is a liar. If if it is true that Jesus isn't God, if he isn't Yahweh in the flesh, then the entirety of the New Covenant, the New Testament, is a lie. That's the importance of this here. John 1, we read um, in John 1, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but literally in the Greek, it says, and God was the word. It's a definition of who God was, not who the word was. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. God was the word. So it's a definition. And Jehovah's Witnesses love to say, well, it just it says that, that the word was a God. Well, it doesn't say that literally in the Greek. In the Greek, it says God was the word. And, so, and then we're told in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then we're also told that in Acts 20, 28, I I love this passage. Oh, before I get there, Titus 1, Titus 2, and Titus 3. The importance of these Titus passages is so critical because, again, in those Isaiah passages, Yahweh declares that He Himself alone is a Savior. There is no other Savior. But Paul says to Titus in chapter 1, um, verse 3, He refers to God our Savior. In verse 4, He refers to Jesus Christ our Savior. And then in uh, chapter 2, um, he refers to God our, our our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in verse 10, he had talked about God our Savior. In chapter three, beginning verse four, he talks about God our Savior. And then in verse four, verse six, he says Jesus Christ our Savior. So Paul refers to both God as our Savior and Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so again, Paul either doesn't know what he's talking about or he assumes that Jesus Christ is God because he makes him one in the self the same as the Savior. Acts twenty, twenty eight, we're told. Um, therefore take heed to yourself to, to all the flock. He's talking to the elders um, among whom the Holy spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And again, you have these verses, hopefully you can look at it, but who purchased the church with his own blood? Clearly it was God that God did it himself. Well, who died on the cross? Jesus. So again, who does Paul assume Jesus is? He's God. And so you can read, through these other um, verses as well regarding the deity of Christ. But we've got to move on with the purity of the, the nature of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about who, who the Holy Spirit is. And so that he's not an it. He's an, he is a personality. He is a, a, a part of the Godhead who was going to be sent by Jesus himself when Jesus left. And that the Holy Spirit was going to have a particular... Um, function when he came, and that was he was going to lead us into all truth. He was going to remind us of the teachings of Jesus. He was going to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. Ephesians 1, we read that when he came as well, that he was going to seal us um, to the day of the redemption, to the day of promise. And so that the Holy Spirit isn't this force that the Jehovah Witnesses want to talk about or the Mormons want to talk about, but rather he is, again, a personality. We read in Acts chapter 5, you can go back and look at that, where uh, Peter talks about, how, did, how is it that you lie into the Holy Spirit? Well, you don't lie to a force. And a force doesn't teach you. And a force doesn't remind you of the teachings of somebody else. And a, and a force can be the guarantee, but not as a seal of my redemption. And in in Ephesians 4 we're talk, we told told about how we can quench the Holy Spirit as well. Well you don't quench a force as well. And so the Holy Spirit is a is an actual entity as well. And then thirdly, again, we're told in these targets of deception is the purity of the nature of the gospel. Turn with me or look down at your your, your verses to Galatians Galatians one Galatians one. Where Paul writes, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of God to a different heteros, a different, a different kind of gospel, which is not another alas, another of the same kind. But there are some who trouble you and want you to pervert the gospel and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? If I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There is no other gospel. Well, what's the other gospel that would be given? It would be a gospel of a different kind. Well, to be a different kind, you got to know what kind we have. Well, what is the gospel that we have? Well, Romans 1, uh, Paul talks about this all through the book of Romans. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That the true gospel is a gospel of faith, not a gospel of works. And so we read that in chapter Uh, 3 verses 19 to 31. I'm going to summarize it in verses 24 and 28, where we're told, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so, that the true gospel that we come and we believe in is a gospel of grace of God that we can come by faith not by our works. And so Galatians 3, we read, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by by the hearing of faith? And you can continue on in that passage. And so he ties the two things together of, who the Holy Spirit is, and that the true Holy Spirit only comes as a result of believing the gospel, of believing by faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that there are no works that you can come. If you are trusting in your works for your salvation, here's the deal, it goes upwards, then you don't have the true Holy Spirit, and you're not following the true Jesus. I don't know how else to describe that, but it all comes together. Only if you know you know the true Jesus will you have the true spirit. And that's by following the true gospel. It's a gospel of faith, a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works. Now, Paul quickly at the end here talks about these ones then who are going to be workers um, against it. And you can see the, the, the themes that are going to run out here in this. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, down in verse 14, Satan himself. Verse 15, his ministers also. And the, all of these transforming themselves into something different. So the false apostles become the apostles of Christ. Satan, into who is a dark angel, becomes an angel of light. His ministers also then become ministers of righteousness. Whose end shall be according to their works. So, first of all, we see their transformation. And the importance of this is that it's a meta schemati, not a metamorphosis, or even a symorphosis. You say, well, okay, what does all that mean? A meta schemati, so the word meta means to change. So meta noia, change the way you think. That's our word for repentance, right? Meta noia, change your change your thinking. Well, meta change schemati. Schemati is the Greek word for the outward form. My morphe, that's our second word, metamorphosis, okay? My, my morphe has always been the same. I have always been Bob. This is who I've always been. But my schemati has changed. If you'd seen a picture of me back when I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, I had, a long, I had long hair and, and all this kind of stuff, and I didn't have a beard. Um, and so my, my schemati is different today than it was back then. There are many people today who are undergoing surgeries to change their schemati, but they can't change their morphe. They are who they always have been, who they were born to be. It's their very nature. God has placed it within them. And so these individuals aren't changing their nature They're changing their outward appearance, their outward form. Now, where that comes into play is Romans chapter 12, right? We're told that I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable act of worship, and do not be conformed to changing your outward appearance. Do not be conformed, changing your outward appearance to be like the world. Do not be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed the metamorphos, changing your the way you think, that you be transformed in the renewing of your mind. So we as believers are told not to change our outward appearance to look like the world, but rather to have our inner nature continually be transformed by the word of God, that we might become more and more like Jesus. That that Second Corinthians 5 says, we become a new creature, a create new creature, that the old are passed away, and behold, all things become new, that no longer are we like the old man, but now we've become like the new? And so Romans 8 tells us that God's purpose for us is to become conformed. That's the similar um, We are supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, not conformed like I'm growing a beard. I joke about it. I grew a beard so I can look more like Jesus. That's, that's, that would be a sim, a, a sim schemati. I, I'm not being conformed outwardly. I'm actually being conformed simmorphe to be conformed inwardly in my very nature to be more like Jesus. Well, these guys don't do that. These workers, these false workers, these workers of deception, they are metaschemati. They are changing their outward appearance so they can look like good guys. They can go on and they can, they have their, tv shows or whatever or beyond and i'm not going to pick on any ones in particular i have them in my mind and you can um have who you want in your mind but it goes beyond even the 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 tv preachers that we're thinking about it's potentially the the boys who are 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 walking um through your neighborhood or the jehovah witnesses who who are dressed up really nice and and they come to your door and, and they have this great presentation they're workers of the devil I mean, I'm I not trying to be rude, and I try not to be rude to them, but I mean, but I'm gonna be clear to them, I'm gonna be straight with them. They can't be of God and I can't be of God at the same time. They have a different Jesus, or I have a different Jesus. Their Jesus isn't my Jesus. Because my Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. My Jesus is 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 the true God. And and the Holy Spirit who lives within me isn't just a force, it's part of the Godhead. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so so we need to understand those things when they come that we don't cl- close the door on them, but rather we give them truth. Look, they need to know the truth when they come to our place. And God has brought them for, the, for us to know, for, for them to know it. So their are parents. They make themselves look like apostles of Christ, angel of light, ministers of righteousness. And we can read about that in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 3. But in the end, we're told that their end shall be according to their works that's their gospel. It's a gospel of works. And so their end shall be according to their works. And where we read Revelation 20 that every man great and small are going to be judged according to their works, but only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life and that's the lamb's book of life of grace through faith are going to enter into the kingdom of God. James 3:1 says be not many teachers because such have the greater condemnation. Matthew 23 um, tells us as well that there are levels of condemnation that are given to those who, who, who come to, to God. And, um, and I'm not finding it on my sheet right here. There we go. Matthew 23, 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour a widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnations. Their end, and you can read the others of these verses as well, their end shall be according to their works. They will give an account. But those who follow them will give an account as well. You don't get a buy for following error. God has given us his word that we might know the fullness of truth. So in the end, do you believe that Satan is real? And that he's working through so-called Christian leaders in order to lead people astray. How sad, but true. How well do you know the truth? So that when someone comes to you and they start espouting these opinions, whether to know that's really biblical or not, How well do you know God's word? Do you study let me just ask this. Do you spend more time in God's word than you do in social media? in the news of this world, who really is the ultimate one who's inculcating quote-unquote truth into your life? There is only one truth, and it's the Word of God. It is absolute truth. And so we need to spend a lot of time in God's Word, because I promise you, Satan is out there, and he's seeking whom he may devour. He's like that roaring lion, and he's bringing untruth into our lives. What are you then proactively doing in your life to prepare yourself to defend the truth. Is there then a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for you. I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that it is true. It is quick. It is powerful. It's sharper than a two edged sword. Lord, it never changes, it is absolute. Lord, you've given it to us to study. Father, help us to be faithful to do that. Help us to magnify you and glorify you. Lord, help us to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us a reason for the hope that's within us. And Lord, I pray that we would then be prepared. Lord, help us to be able to to share with the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons that come to our door. Help us to be able to share with our neighbors, Lord, who may be um, agnostic, without knowledge. Maybe the individual who comes and thinks they're atheistic, but they're really not, Lord, and that we can share with them the truth of who you are and that your desire to have a relationship with them. God, I pray that you'd be magnified in us individually, in us as an assembly. Lord, help us to reach our neighborhood. Help us to reach our community with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.